Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone, as always, it is co-host Alan Niven. Or, actually, if you look at the the way I write the episodes now, I write Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon dot 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 and Alan Niven presents. So, um, I think we might have to update the Wikipedia page. Uh, Bonjour, Monsieur Alain. How are you? Bonjour. I am very good today. It's a splendid, beautiful day in Arizona, in the desert. Uh, June is usually the toughest month to get through. It's the hottest temperatures. But it's probably only in the high 70s out here at the moment, and it's just perfect. The sky is COVID blue, clean and clear, and it's lovely. Well, well, speaking of COVID, I did read in the news, though, <laughs> can we really trust the news anymore? But I read that Arizona is one of the hottest spots for COVID, that there's a resurgence in in the uh, in the in the virus, which is not good news. So hopefully, uh, stays far far away from you and everybody else. I think people need to keep their sense of caution about them. Um, I am aware that seventy five percent of the ICU beds in the state are now filled with patients, um, which I think is a warning to everybody. And I noticed on the news today that in Beijing they'd closed down the major wholesale market, food market in the center of the city. And there are something like between 10 and 15,000 people who work there and they've just closed it down because of another spike. And I, I think it's just a, a warning to everybody out there, guys, keep your common sense, keep using your hand wipes. And my recommendation is always have something in the car because that's your first line of defense is get in the car, clean your hands off, clean your steering wheel. But let's get into some music. Yeah, and I just want to say, I, I read that too, and I think they said it was, uh, at least in the Canadian news, that it was the largest market in the world or something. Like you said, there's like 15,000 employees, not not to mention the uh, the people that go there. But just real quick on that, uh, Doro Pesh of Warlock played a show uh, on the weekend, the weekend of uh, June 12th, 13th, 14th, where uh, people drove in. So it was a drive-in concert. Everybody was in their car. and So uh, we'll have Doro on on one of the next episodes just to quickly talk about that. But, but what do you think of that drive-in concept? Is it, you know, making lemonade out of, you know, lemons? Or is it silly? Is it smart? Is it the way of the future? How do you quickly just see that? I love the idea of people driving into a concert because, you know, you can put your coolers in the back of the car. Uh, you can bring food easily. You can bring drinks easily. You can bring a couple of friends and you don't have to feel um, vulnerable to people sitting right next to you in a seat. Um, I, th I think it's a brilliant concept. I, I think a lot of people are wishing today that we still had driving uh, film theaters, because that's a great way to go and see a movie and get out of the box and feel like you're doing something and uh, still be safe. Um, you know, and bear in mind at Sturgis, you know, all the bikers would come in and ride their bikes right up to the stage um, and then rev them instead of applauding after a song, um, which was an incredible thing to have happen. 
But no, I, I think that's a brilliant idea that Doro has employed. I, I think it's great, too. And, and Garth Brooks is doing something similar, the, the country star. He is doing a concert that's going to be broadcast to 300 drive-ins in the U.S. and you, you, you pay. And he's going to perform at a soundstage wherever he is, Los Angeles, Nashville, wherever. And they're going to transmit this to these drive-ins across the states. And the first thing you, you, you say when you hear that, you go, is there's 300 drive-ins in the states in 2020? Yes, there are. So, <laughs> right? Because I read that and I went, whoa, there's 300 drive-ins? But yeah, that, that's another interesting concept. And I think that might actually be sort of a wave of the future. Instead of taking a whole production on the road that costs millions of dollars, you do one show on a soundstage and you broadcast it to everybody around the world at the same time and bring in the ticket revenue. I mean, that's sort of an interesting concept too. It's an interesting concept, but of course the managerial brain starts ticking in. And uh, my first caveat is, guys, if you go to a gig like that, watch out for the black and whites and smoky, you know, smoky the bear sitting in, in the bushes to try and pull you over for a DUI when you're leaving the gig. Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree. But uh, let's get over to our, our guest today. It is Tommy Shaw, and he has released a cover of the Led Zeppelin classic Going to California. And I have to say, from the 80s era, Zach Wilde did a version, and I believe maybe Jeff Pilson was on it, or maybe Zach did it back in 96, 97, which is absolutely stunning. Maybe even the version to go to, but but Tommy's version is great. Were were you a a fan of of Tommy Shaw and Sticks? Were you a fan of of going to California? Is it one of the classic Led Zeppelin songs? Oh, it, it's a great Led Zeppelin song, and of course Tommy has had a a pretty stellar career. Um, I wouldn't say that I was a tremendous Sticks fan, but I did buy Grand Illusion uh, on its release while I was traveling in the States from the UK. And I thought that was a, a, a really solid and intelligent record. Um, but uh, I may be wrong on this and forgive me if I'm, if I am, but I think Tommy also did, and I don't know if it ever got released, but he, he did a record of entire covers. And I think it was under the names of boonies or something. It was some bizarre name, but there were some pretty splendid covers that he did on on that record. Well, he did do a covers record with um, Jack Blades of Night Ranger. And uh, hmm, uh, I can see the cover in my head, but I can't remember what it was called. But yeah, he's 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 known to do covers. And, and by the way, just quickly on Sticks and Led Zeppelin, for years fans have debated whether or not the song Sweet Madam Blue was a ripoff of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You. And of course, Great White, your band covered that. So do you know both songs? Do you, do you hear any similarities? Uh, because I've actually spoken to Dennis DeYoung about it, and he said, Mitch, there's, there's, we didn't cover Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You. He said, to be perfectly honest, we stole while my guitar gently weeps. Go, go back and listen ah. to Sweet Madam Blue. <laughs> he did. He told me that for real. Again, it's a long time ago, but I seem to remember exchanging some letters with some legal uh, counsel uh, employed by Led Zeppelin as to the credit of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You, because, and again, I hope my memory is not wrong, but I seem to remember Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You was basically a, um, 
blue standard that they decided they were going to put their names on. Um, and I think at some point, babe, I'm going to leave you as credited as, as arranged by Led Zeppelin. And then I think that the as arranged slipped off and they were, they were collecting the royalties on it. Um, but my memory of babe, I'm going to leave you is that it was a blue standard. It probably, yeah, well, we don't want to get into the whole debate, but there's a lot of stuff that wasn't really, really written by Led Zeppelin. But before we get over to Tommy Shaw, let me just uh, well, state... Well, I, I could could tell you a lovely little story. Um, now, you know that uh, Jack Russell and Mark Kendall of Great White are you know, massive Zeppelin fans. So there was one evening that I thought, maybe I should play them this record. And I pulled out this record and played it for them, and uh, they were sitting there and looking a little puzzled and agitated and Jack looked at Mark and Mark looked at Jack and eventually Jack turned around to me and he said, Niv, why is this old black man trying to play Led Zeppelin? And of course the album I was playing was Willie Dixon's I Am The Blues. That's, that's, that's hilarious. That, that is funny. And uh, just real quick, uh, this week, uh, earlier this week, June 14th, 1995, guitarist Rory Gallagher uh, passed away. So it's been, uh, what's the math on that? 25 years, I guess. Um, has nothing to do with Tommy Shaw, has nothing to do with Led Zeppelin, but, but were you a Rory Gallagher fan and did his passing 25 years ago affect you in any way, shape or form? Well, when somebody you admire and you recognize as a really spirited player passes, it does affect you in a little bit of a way. There's that pang of regret that they're gone and they're not going to generate any new performances. Um, but he, you know, unfortunately, as somebody I, I didn't get the opportunity to meet. Um, but yes, a special player. And if you don't know Rory Gallagher, go check him out. Yeah, and, and, and I'll finish on this real quick, but it, it, he's another one of these guys that seems to have this continental divide. If you're in the UK or Europe, He's, he's, you know, like Stevie Ray Vaughan or, or Joe Bonamassa or, or Satriani or Vi. He's just one of these guitar gods. And sometimes in North America, you sort of have to explain it to people. You go, no, no, he's a guitar god. Trust me. And it's just, it's just strange sometimes how we have these divides between populations. Because ultimately, we're all music fans and we sort of all like, you know, our bands, our Great Whites and our Guns and Roses and our Def Leppards and our, you know, and it's... Interesting. Well, there's, in, in, you know, there's many, as I, as I say often, there's many a slip between cup and lip. And all kinds of things can go wrong when you're dealing with a major record company. Um, but one of the things that befuddled me was how good the angels from Australia were and how little they were known here. Um, which I tried to amend in my own small way um, by getting them a, a, a deal on Chrysalis um, back in the 80s. But, you know, that's another case of if you don't know the Angels from Australia, go check them out. And while you're at it, check Havana, out Rose Tattoo. And Havana Black. But no, it, 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 anyway, it's just strange because, the, you know, in the next couple of uh, weeks, we've got interviews with REO Speedwagon. We've got interviews today with Tommy Shaw and, 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 and others. And some of those bands, the Night Rangers, the, they haven't really translated to European 
markets. And and anyway, it's just it's just not always at bad. all. I mean, yeah. you, know, you know, when when I uh, bought my first REO uh, albums, I bought them while I was traveling here in the states. Went back to London and was pretty much the only person in my social circle who had an REO record. Um, and I seem to remember it was a double live record. Could Help be. me out. Would you? It- uh, uh, this would have been 1977. I can't remember right now. I mean, H- High Infidelity, of course, is the one that set the world on fire. But it's just, it's just strange to me. You know, you, you look at Ted Nugent, you look at Journey, you look at Sticks, you look at REO, you look at Night Ranger. Great American success. They can go out and do hundred shows a year in the U.S. They rarely come into Canada. Well, Styx does, but the rest of them rarely come into Canada, and they certainly rarely ever go to Berlin, for example. It's it's, it's baffling. Anyway, let us... Well, let, yes. A, a, a part of that is the fact that the summertime is the main touring market, and that's when bands want to go out and play the big venues, the outdoor venues, and so on and so forth. And the, the there are American bands who really don't want to go and play Europe in the winter. So they stayed here in America and made a lot of money in the summer and went, eh, Poland in the rain and the snow? No, I don't think so. Because it's like anything else. You've got to put the work in. And you cannot build a following unless you go out there and prove yourself as a live band. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But 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 conversely, like, and we've had this discussion a hundred times, uh, the Rory Gallagher's and, and the status quo's and the thunders and they never made the effort to come here and tour in the summer. They just sort of went, uh, anyway, uh, yes. Well, they probably couldn't get on the bills in the summer because, you know, you need a strong bill to build those large venues up. So, you know, again, they needed to come and do the work in the wintertime in America. Um, And, uh, you know, you're trying to get the American offices of your record company to support you and maybe put up some tour support, some financial support for you to get over. And of course, those people have got their new American signings that they're far more interested in. And they kind of have that, ah, well, you know, it's Thunder, it's the UK. I've got this new band Tesla I want out there. So, you know, there was, a, there was definitely a sense of com- competition that you had to work against. Yeah. Yep. Like everything, politics ruined our our music scene. Politics politics ruins everything. But uh, let's get apolitical here and get over to uh, Tommy Shaw talking about going to California, Led Zeppelin, and a lot more. Here is the one, the only, Tommy Shaw. We are speaking with Styx's Tommy Shaw. He's got a new single called "Going to California," which, of course is a cover of the Led Zeppelin classic, as we say in Montreal. Tommy, bonjour. How are you? Bonjour. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm great, all things considered. You know, I'm, uh, this is the first time I've been uh, at my uh, home here in Nashville since we moved here in the springtime, because that's, uh, that's always prime touring time for us. And In fact, the day that I got the call to not go to the airport, was I was packing my suitcase to go out on a three-week uh, run with sticks, and so I was here to see the apple blossoms, smell them. I'd never, I, I'd, I'd never seen them before, 
Uh, and, you know, so it, it's been kind of nice to reconnect here with where I live, actually to connect uh, for the first time in spring. Well, in fact, let me ask you about that, because, you know, a, a lot of bands, as we as we get older, we start talking about farewell tours and getting off the road and stuff. But then when you're off the road, you go, dang, I missed sort of the backstage catering and the bus calls and the meal tickets and stuff. And the gig. And the gig, yeah. The show. How, how is it for you? I mean, does it... Has it sort of changed your perspective on we should call a farewell tour in the next five years to like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, I stayed home for COVID. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I've, I, I, farewell is when they're, you know, they're reading your name saying, you know, he had, he had a long and uh, wonderful life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, your farewell. We, we don't need that. So, so let's talk about no. this uh, going to California. It was recorded. In the past years ago, it was supposed to be part of, I guess, Shaw Blade's third album or whatever. It doesn't come out. It goes in the vault. Um, talk to me about pulling it out, but also, what does the song mean to you? Why did it speak to you? Why did you say, you know what, I'm going to give this a go and record this song? Well, I I had a similar experience. Uh, uh, I was living in New York, and, and my wife and I got a divorce, and I, I just wanted to, I'd always wanted to uh, live in California, I'd, I'd rented and you know kind of spent some time there, but I hadn't lived there, and that's what I did. I just I, I got this notion, and I packed up all my stuff and moved to uh, to Los Angeles, and so it, it had a, a ring of truth and experience for me. Um, but it was also just one of those things that. Uh, my friend Willie Vankovich, who was the third guy in Shaw Blades and is also the Sticks uh, co-writer and producer, uh, we had finished with all the cover stuff. The album was done. We toured behind it with Shaw Blades. But he said, you know, I've always wanted to hear you do this song. And, I, I you know, it's Robert Plant singing a, you know, a, a beautiful version of it. And... He said, I think, you know, I think it's in your wheelhouse. So I said, well, you know, let's just lay down the guitar and the mandolin and let me give it a shot. Uh, because, I, you know, I wanted, the covers are funny. You don't, you, you know, you want to inject your, your own personality and yourself into it, but you don't want to wreck the magic that was created by the original. So it was just Will and me in the studio. So we played around with it a few, a few times and I got to know it, you know, how to sing it and finally got that one take and it was like well i think i don't think i can beat that and it's really sat in i mean this has been kind of a few years uh where it just sat with uh, you know what are we going to do with this in the you know in that file <laughs> but it was always a, i always go back and listen to it and enjoy enjoy it so but here's here's why we did it, it was because after the lockdown there were no more stick shows and our fans were they had bought tickets and they're still holding on to their tickets for when we rescheduled these and and we were you know you know thinking what can we do to give them some kind of content so we started uh, remixing some of our live concerts and uh it started out small and then it was like well let's why don't you do a video that so I did a video in my studio just me playing boat on the river and then sent it to Todd and Lawrence and they added their parts to it. So, so we had a little special thing in the middle of that show and it just started getting to the point where we had a, like a two hour show that we were trying to produce. And, you know, you've got 
guys like me, I'm not really a Pro Tools engineer. I, I can do my demos and things like that on it, but uh, these things were getting so long uh, that we were up till like 3 o'clock in the morning on the last the morning before the show was going to go. And my uh, engineer, who's in Denver, we're, we're starting to make mistakes. And we're going, you know, you, you start going backwards. And uh, so we, because we were just getting exhausted, and we fin- I finally said, we got to have some time off here. And that really, that's kind of how that happened. I said, I've got this song. Why don't we just release that for the fans? And it's something new for them. And um, so I, I honestly thought this is just going to be something we put out for our fans on our Facebook, you know, and all our social media, and let them know about it, and they can enjoy that. And then, then we'll see what happens after that. Uh, but the, everybody in the office said, "No, this this is a, this is good. We should go ahead and just follow through with it and get it, make it, put it out there for everybody to enjoy." So that's what ha- that's why we're talking today. Yeah, and and listen, it, it it absolutely turned out great. Well, so let me ask you just a couple of things back from you know the seventies when you were out on the road. Did you at any time cross paths with with Led Zeppelin? Was it a band that you were as as sticks? Were you watching that band going ah? That's a good move. We should we should do that. You know what, what was sort of the relationship with with the band as you saw them in their prime? Well, we it was actually near. It was one of uh, John Bonham's last concerts, and we we had a, we were in Germany, and uh, we had played a few shows, and it was time to we had a couple of days off, so we went ahead to the next place we were going to be playing, which was Hanover, Germany. And we pulled in that night, and you know, our usual thing is we we all show up. Everybody goes up to their room, and we see you the next afternoon when you know checkout time. So we go into the lobby, and somebody says, "I think I just saw John Bonham in there." And uh, then I look, and there's Jimmy Page walking into the hotel. And so, uh, so you know, our normal routine of going up and then going to bed. None of that counted. Within five minutes, everybody was back down in the lobby, and um, so I I went to the, the lounge with uh, the the woman I was I was living with in Michigan at the time, and so we walked in and there's Robert Plant and he sees us and he says, "Come come join us." So we spent you know I you know a nice long time with him and. Uh, John Bonham was there, and he introduced us, and could not have been more cordial and, and uh, you know, and friendly. And we, we we had a great night, and then we went to see them the next night, and um, it was it was unforgettable. Oh yeah, I can imagine. And I'll, I'll ask you one more Zep question, then I'm going to get back to it uh, to Sticks. But uh, Sweet Madam Blue has been sort of compared to a, as a distant cousin of Led Zeppelin's "Babe, I'm Going to Leave You." Was that a, a a nod to the song? Was it completely accidental, or was it like, "Hey, I like what they're doing. Let's sort of figure." Out. How did that sort of come about? Well, from what I understand, it was because this was on Equinox. This was the year that I joined the band, but it had been recorded earlier, uh, and I, I think the idea was, was was let's do something arpeggiated on the twelfth string. And that was uh, what John Sorluski came up with, and then they built the song around that. Uh, and we play that song to this day. Uh, John was one of those guys. I, I really admired his influence on the band, especially on that album. Uh, and I got to meet him one 
you know, just a brief moment when I was up there to, uh, to do the audition to join Sticks in late December '75, and I was staying with the tour manager, and uh, and John knocked on the door, and I answered the door, and that's how we met, and uh, you know, it's kind of awkward in a way for both of us because he was the guy that's taking your place, but he he left. He didn't get, to, you know, it was it was his doing that he left. And that was my only living exposure to John Sirleski. But I've, you know, the more I listen to the Equinox album, I hear his influence, and and re- he was really something re- experimental, and he had a really high voice that he, you know, he used beautifully, and um, you know, that's one of my favorite Sticks albums. Oh, a fantastic album! And that song "Live" still resonates. I've seen you, uh, God, four or five times in the last couple of years, and it's just fantastic. Um, recently, I was talking to uh, to Todd, and he he spoke of this new Sticks album that is ready to go, but sort of locked down because of the lockdown. But he spoke specifically of a song called "Sound the Alarm." Um, talk to me a little bit about this sort of finished album and and this song "Sound the Alarm," which apparently is very emotive and, and makes him want to cry and, and it's just super beautiful um when do we think we get to see this and and can we do it at a distance where you send each other mp3s or or, or you know files and just get it done while everybody's at home well everybody has learned it that way you know we've we've kept them uh, you know in the loop and uh, so todd everybody knows their parts uh but we like to record at blackbird for tracking, uh, we like their drum sounds and their, and their, diff- their different choices of drum rooms. And it's eight minutes from where I live, so we can do some of it, uh, some of the details in my studio. But uh, uh, all of the drums we do over there on two twenty-four track, uh, two-inch tape Studer machines. So everything is analog there. Uh, and in fact, on the last album, The Mission, there was not one single digital plug-in anywhere. Even for the tape echoes, we we had two tape machines rolling around on the, the control room floor. One of them had a very speed, and Jim Scott would figure out the, the, the math for the uh, delay times. So everything that you hear on there has this warm tape saturation sound to it. Even if it was recorded on Pro Tools digitally, you know, we would record at the highest resolution and everything would go over there and it would run across the tape heads so it had that uh, that tape saturation to it. So that that's one of the reasons we like to go over there. And, and uh, John um, uh, McBride, who owns the studio, he's a big collector of analog gear. So he has all these great tube amps and processors and uh, limiters and uh, so it's just if you're a, if you're an uh, analog geek, which we are, um, it's 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 just a magical place to to record. And he has, you know, the, the uh, album Asia by Steely Dan. Of course, that album. You know, and that's a lot of people say that's the best analog record ever recorded. Well, John has the console that that he he bought from them and uh, so we like using that and um, so we we just have this this kinship and and we're good friends with John McBride I have a little building right across the street from there that we use for storage and um, 
so it's it's a it's a nice familiar place for us. Yeah, and and I like that old style of recording. I, I actually prefer when bands get you know four on the floor and just roll tape. But uh, you mentioned Will a couple of times. He's of course on the Going to California track with you. He did produce the Mission first album in twelve years. Um, was that album sort of the relaunch of? Styx's recording career because you've got this new album that you're working on did that sort of give you the juices to say hey this is fun to write new music and let's keep doing it and how important is new music at this stage for the band well it just depends on how you're doing musically if you're if if it's coming to you and it's working and it's appealing to everybody and and you know you're writing it for everyone uh, and because that's what what it's meant to do is just to showcase everybody in the band's talents, and uh, because everybody in the band is is a standout musician, uh, that that is the kind of thing where we want to do it again. And and the mission, you know, it, it's been so well received by the fans, uh, and did so well on the charts and and sales wise that we at one point we said let's see what happens if we play the entire album live and then play it take a break and then come back and play all the classic stuff and that's just become a destination for our fans we had we had uh, uh, the beacon booked and we had the warner theater booked in uh in uh, dc uh and um we we already played i think three of those shows and uh they embraced this album uh, and if you've ever listened to it, it's one of those albums. Um, it it kind of goes by quickly, and to the point where you get to the end, and it's like, and you want to you wind up playing it over again. I, I myself, I even do that. I get to the end, it's like I should have been paying more attention to the beginning of it because now I know how it ends. Um, so so we really enjoy the the art of making an album and writing it as an album and then sequencing is it as an album so that it's it's a journey from song to song every song is like taking you up a, a step into further into the you know what's coming next does that make sense it, it makes total sense and and i have to say by the way as a fan sometimes when you hear oh the band's got a new new album you go oh okay great and then i heard the mission and i went Oh, yeah, that is great. Well done. Now, you did a lot of the writing with Will. Uh, most of the tracks are written by you and Will. Do you see yourself at some point going off with him and doing some kind of solo project? I mean, not too long ago, you did The Great Divide. Right. Do, do you see yourself saying, hey, Will, let's let's put together, you know, a singer-songwriter project or a bluegrass album part two or um, where do you see your relationship with him going? Well, there's that because we've pretty much written. There, 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 we're going to have to call some songs from the next album because we, we like <clears throat> to not overstay our welcome as an album. I like I like for you to get to the end and wish there was more, uh, rather than I, I can't finish. I, I don't have time to listen to 18 songs. You know, I like it where it's almost like a cliffhanger. Uh, and then you can sit down and listen to it on two sides of a of a vinyl disc. That's kind of the rule. Can we fit it onto one disc? Uh, and so we're already writing into something. I don't I don't know whether it's a solo album or what. Uh, but yeah, we've talked about that, and um, I've had uh, some people saying, "When are you going to do another bluegrass album?" Which I would love to do, especially now that I live in Nashville. 
Uh, it's, I, I know I'll never be fully accepted by the uh, International Bluegrass Associ- Music Association because, you know, I'm just not, I'm not one of them. I haven't paid bluegrass dues, but uh, I do, I'm, you know, I'm born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama, so I've had that kind of uh, influence in my life since I was a kid, listening to Grand Ole Opry and, and everything that came up at night on WMS. And so I know just from face value, it might seem kind of like, or, you know, you ain't from around here, buddy, but I am from around here. So, uh, I, you know, I kind of did it for myself and for my mother. It was, it was her favorite album I ever did. Um, and uh, I just it, It's a fun it. album. Listen, it's a fun album. I, 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 people with always, you know, labeling stuff in genres. It's it's a fun album. But I I do want to ask, or actually, I want to. Um, you mentioned that the albums have to fit onto a vinyl. And by the way, thank you for saying that because growing up in the seventies, you know, you had eight songs, nine songs. Albums were thirty minutes, thirty four minutes, and then the CD came out, and every band I loved decided that it had to be seventy five minutes long. And there was an exhaustion. I just like, it's like, ugh, I don't want to listen to 17 songs. Please. I know. Well, you can't comprehend that much information as well as you can a short conversation. It's like when someone talks too long, after a certain while, you start to just start to sound like, you can't, I can't, what were we talking about before? Yeah. And, and by the way, which is why I want to keep interviews to, to about 25 minutes, because when I was with a different network, they would say, you have to do an hour. And I'm like, listen, I love Tommy, but an hour's a lot. So 25 minutes is, is great. But um, quickly back to The Great Divide. You had a chance to work with uh, Alison Krauss. She, she did backing vocals on two songs. She's, of course, done stuff with Robert Plant. Uh, what was it like working with Alison? Because she, she is just one of these talents, right? Oh, she's just insane. I, when we were in Damn Yankees, we were playing outdoors, I think, in Indianapolis one evening, and somebody said, Allison Krauss uh, is, is at the stage entrance. And I, I, I was like, yeah, right. You know, because I've been following her since she was a little kid, and I said, I can't, no, she's not a Styx fan. Well, when I lived in Los Angeles, my wife and I lived next door to a, a casting agent, and her husband was an actor, and... Um, one day, uh, Nancy, the, 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 who lived next door, she sends over the CD of Allison Krauss in Union Station. And uh, she said, I want you to listen to this because they're playing down at the Wiltern. Maybe we'll go see her. And so I, I put it on and I was like, have you, I don't know if you, have you heard that album? It's, if you haven't, you should. Which one? Like, uh, Allison Krauss in Union Station. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, that's okay, so that's, what, that's what I do. I'm a rock guy. I have to listen to all of this. It's a, it's just a classic. So we said we're definitely going. So we get down there. We got good seats, you know, like fifteenth row kind of center. And uh, so she, she comes out, and she, they're just awesome. It's just like Mahavishnu Orchestra of bluegrass, and they're funny. And um, it's and then she starts talking about. She says, you know, one of my favorite singers ever growing up is is in the audience tonight and i'm looking around because i recognize all kinds of actors and singers and um it's a you know very diverse uh, but you know kind of famous audience and i'm thinking god is it that guy and well it was me she called me out by name up there and i was like what you know i i was just stunned and so 
of course, when it was over with, I thought, well, we got to go backstage. And she told the story about how she used to go with her, her brother and uh, pull up to the health food store and open up the door and put on a Sticks album and, and walk away from the car and have it blaring out there just to, <laughs> just to see if she could irritate people. And uh, so that led to to me asking her to come sing a song on this album, the solo album that I did, Seven Deadly Zens, on this song called Half a Mind. And so she came to the house, and first of all, she and my wife became instant friends because they're 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 kind of two of the kind, two of a kind, still are. And uh, you know, they they their phone calls are like, I don't want to be, in, I don't want to hear all this, uh, you know, girl talk stuff. So anyway, so this was that day when they when they became friends, and we're listening um, the other in the control room uh, for her singing half a mind, and just tears coming down. It was so so beautiful, you know, singing the verses and then singing the the chorus with me, um, and then she sang uh, on the title track of the Great Divide. And it's you know anything that Allison does, it's just it's angelic and emotional, you know, uh, you know something that will just bring up your emotions. It just it gets to your heart. Uh, so that was, you know, I I have to pinch myself of some of the great the good fortune I've had along the way, and that was that was one of those things. That that was definitely one of the things. Now, you quickly mentioned Damn Yankee, so I'm just going to ask you this because we, we've talked about it before. You told me that that unreleased album was sitting in your vaults in, in Nashville. You told me this about two years ago. Uh, yeah. si- since you're releasing stuff from the vaults like going to California, how close are we getting to the uh, Damn Yankees being released? Is that, I mean, someday maybe or just no? No, it, it was it. It was <laughs> was put together wrong. It was the wrong producer there was uh there was no vibe between uh well, at least i know for me and the producer uh i came in and went out to sing one of my songs and he had rewritten the chorus rewritten my lyrics to, to the chorus and i go to sing and it's like that who and i saw jack kind of you know a little half smile on his face looking because he said boy this is gonna be good <laughs> and i was like what is your name again and and you rewrote my lyrics, and I'm supposed to, uh, I, I, no, first of all, no. And holy, you know, bothered the nerve of you to do that. And uh, that's kind of how it went from there. I was oh, like, you, that's funny. That's we're funny. not meant to work together, pal. And and the rest of it, it was just not a, uh, an organic Damn Yankees album. When, when Damn Yankees is recording, we don't need help. We, we've, we've got this, you know. Um, so it's there. And even John Collodner said, just, no, take the tape home. <laughs> this, is, this was a bad idea, you know. Damn Yankees has this magic, and we're still friends. We, we could we could step up and play right now. No rehearsal. We'd all play it, and it would be like it would. It would that there it would be. Wow. Okay. So so yeah. When a producer is rewriting your lyrics, now I get it. No, I just asked because the the other day I was watching um, one of the Much Music channels here in Canada, and they played uh, Damn Yankees live in Denver. Some they played some videos, and I was I just watched the band. And I was going first of all. 
wow, it's 2020 and they're playing the Yankees. And then I looked at how the energy was and I went, my Lord, what a great effing band. Holy mackerel. Be so good to see them again. Um, and I will, I will finish on this just for a little Canadian content. You, of course, have uh, Lawrence Gowan, one of our greatest exports. You did, of course, sort of come to his... He, he became, you became aware of him at a show in Montreal on, on a Def Leppard bill, but also Will Ivankovic uh, is in the Guess Who. A lot of Canadian connections. Um, what does Canada mean to Sticks? And I know it's sort of a very stock question, but still... What does can what does sticks mean to can or yeah Canada mean to sticks? Well, it's always a breath of fresh air going up there. Just the the people and the culture uh, and the talent that's up there. Uh, you know, because there's Canada is such a vast territory uh, and their population. You know, if, if you probably distributed acres per citizen. Everybody would have a massive <laughs> ranch, you know. Uh, so the gigs up there are, are not as plentiful as they are here. So Canadian artists have to work so hard to get saturation to, to everyone up there. So they're they're all just these hardworking, super talented. They you know they leave no side of their career unmanaged, and so to work with them and it's like. Uh, um, you know, Sass Jordan, uh, she's she's a great example of that. Um, it's, you know, she's, she's had a number one blues album. It's been, it was number one for um, almost two months last time I checked. And it's unbelievable. Um, so so I, I have such great respect. And all the Canadian bands that we'd worked with, same thing. We're, we're still good friends with them. And uh, when we go up there, a lot of times we'll we'll still have them on the bill. Yeah, um, and you'll still have uh, Lawrence pull out uh, "Criminal Mind" or one of those songs, which is always sort of a a nice little addition to a stick show in Canada, is to see a, a Gowan song being done live. And hey, well, I don't know if I don't know if you heard the story when we asked him to come to to Los Angeles to see if he would be a fit with sticks. You know, his voice was, was different, but it's this voice, it's in the same register and he, he's a, he's more of a rock singer than, than Dennis was. So, you know, we weren't trying to fool anybody into thinking that, we, that Dennis was still the singer because, you, you know, you're going to find out. So uh, we, we just adapted, but it, when he came to play, it was, it was at my house in, um, Hollywood Hills, and um, he, we went into my studios, just just him, James Young, our manager, Charlie Brusco, and me, and our, we were the three people in his audience. And I said, don't don't play Come Sail Away. I play Criminal Mind. Do, do it like you did it at the show the other night. So he did. He did it exactly as if he was playing at, you know... Uh, the Bell at, Center, or the Mole Center. Yeah. So, yes. He 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 just laid it bare like that, and all of us at the end of it were like, "Oh my God, <laughs> wow!" Uh, and that's the that's the way he rolls, you know. He he no half measures for Lawrence Gowan, and he's been such he's like the big brother in the band, even though he's age wise he's somewhere in the middle, um, but he is a big brother in his family, you know, lineage, 
And so he he behaves like one, and he's this great calming voice in the band. Plus, he's 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 got a great sense of humor. And uh, you know, when you're on the road, the hang is about eighty five percent of it. You know, it's the downtime. And so the downtime out there is just as fun as the on time. So you know, all those things matter, and and that's why we've been able to play as many shows. Uh, per year for as many years as we have and still look forward to every single night of it. You know, he throws down up there. Uh, everybody does. So it's the kind of band where you don't want to be the guy who's bringing up the rear. And uh, it's just such a joy. Oh, yeah, it really is. And uh, on that, uh, Tommy, always, always a pleasure going to California, of course, folks. Available now. And uh, as we say here in Montreal, merci. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye now. Okay. Bye. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.